You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, your source for mostly civil discussions about theology, philosophy, literature, and other things that human beings do well. Join us each week for our conversations and visit our website at christianhumanist.org, where you can email us, read our blog, and order merchandise paying homage to the most important Christian thinkers of the past two millennia. And now, the hosts of the Christian Humanist Podcast, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. Stuck in the old top pits. Get the dinosaurs out of the old top pits. They were kings like Elvis. They got swiveling hips. We will buy them some guitars and some guitar picks. Welcome, listeners, to another awesome Christian humanist podcast. Uh, this week I'll be your host. I'm David Grubbs. I'm a graduate assistant at the University of Georgia in the English department. Uh, with me this week, like last week and the week before that and so forth, uh, is Michael Farmer, who is an adjunct instructor of developmental writing at Tallahassee. Are you still? I am not. By the time this airs, I will be an ex-graduate instructor and a soon-to-be assistant professor of English at Crown College, St. Mm. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Well, congratulations. It's it's the end of an era and the beginning of a new. It's true. Um, Tallahassee Community College has ended its Michael Farmer era. <laughs> That's great. Um, also with us is uh, Nathan Gilmore, uh, assistant professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia, which is uh, just at the beginning and not nearly at the height of their Nathan Gilmore era, but uh, we, have, <laughs> we have high hopes. How are you doing, Nathan? I'm doing pretty well. It is Good Friday when we're recording, so I've got the day off and I've been doing a little bit of work around the house. Didn't have to commute today, so that always puts me in a good mood. I've got Excellent. a question about the Gilmore era. Yes. What do you want on your statue? What, what, do, you want the, what do you want the epigraph to say? <laughs> as long as I have a human head rather than a donkey's, I'll be all right. <laughs> I just imagine you riding a donkey, holding both ears and it rearing back. <laughs> Vini Vidi Vexi? Yeah, probably. <laughs> I always wanted mine to say, he hated you all. <laughs> I think you'd have to give a lot of money for them to put that statue up, though. <laughs> yes, a lot of money. Enough to name a building after you. Um, segue. Uh, this week, our topic, uh, well, not our topic, because we learned about topics a few episodes ago. Our subject uh, is going to be, uh, well, how English is taught, uh, English literature is taught, uh, how canons are taught, and uh, what what shapes them, and uh, what little things get left out of our canons. Uh, but before we get there, uh, let's do a little housekeeping. Um, I saw links post up on the blog. Um, any, anything you guys want to say about that? It's another all Gilmore week on the Christian Humanist blog. <laughs> like like yes. last week and the week before it and the week before that back to time immemorial as freshman comp students might say oh yes yeah, since the beginning of human history there have been yes. many things in our world today <laughs> yeah nathan gilmore like religion can be a crutch <laughs> we ought to do a show that's where we speak in nothing but freshman comp cliches <laughs> As if we hadn't alienated enough listeners. <laughs> well, in today's society, I think there are too many cliches. Everyone uh, has someone they love. Well, it is to be hoped. Uh, well, if there's 
nothing, well, nothing that doesn't make Michael and I feel bad about how <laughs> little we contribute to the blog to talk about. Um, no reader feedback that 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 uh, that I know of, um, other than uh, I and the gentleman from Briarcrest keep uh, Briarcrest College in Canada keeping up the uh, they might be giants riff. Um, you know, I was really hoping I, I, I set up the show notes last week so that there was a question to our listeners about whether Gilmore was being ridiculous and allowing a DVD player in his minivan or whatever. And isn't the silence deafening, Farmer? It, it is. I, I don't know. I don't know if I can take that as a victory or if you can. So I oh, want our I, listeners I, to tell us beyond a shadow of a doubt who's right. Should Nathan Gilmore have a DVD player in his car to muzzle his children? Farmer, I have taken and I am taking it as a victory. Our our viewers, our listeners, pardon me, once <laughs> children know better and the ones who don't yet are not casting the first stone. I'm casting the first stone. <laughs> and I will continue to cast until every DVD player is out of every car. <laughs> children need to learn to be bored. I had to be bored when I was a child. You know what? That's actually a great uh, a great subject for a completely other podcast. I so, actually think um, that most of our podcasts are about teaching our listeners how to be bored. <laughs> <laughs> well, then we're we're more um we're more showing than telling really. It's it's like it's like Milton's Satan. Um, yeah, yes. Yes, surprised by boredom. <laughs> okay. We we need we need to get this started. <laughs> um but uh, I think before we get started into the uh, conversation in earnest, we need to lay a little bit of groundwork. Uh, I'll let you lay that groundwork, Michael. Um, first, what's a what is a canon? Just in general, when we talk about issues of canon, what do we mean, and how does this connect with the, with the discussion we're about to have? Well, uh, a canon is nothing but a collection of approved texts, and those could be. Books, of course, they could be music. There's a there's a canon of classical music. There's a canon of rock music. Um, they any kind of a collection of any kind of media. But you, generally, you're talking about books. Um, the classic example of a canon is the Bible. Those 66, or <laughs> depending on uh, depending on what tradition you come from, uh, 70 plus books are the canon of approved scripture. This is what the church has decided is useful for teaching. Uh, inerrant, depending on how you look at it. Uh, the thing about a canon, though, is that every text you include necessarily excludes another text, because you can't possibly have a canon that is composed of everything. the The whole purpose is to to exclude and include. So, can't making the making of a canon can really raise people's ires. Now, what we're talking about today is mostly the Western canon, which is the great books of Western civilization. Generally, that starts with Homer's Iliad and Odyssey and move through to, oh, I don't know, crime and punishment. I don't know where people tend to end that, usually in the 19th century. There's not a whole lot of 20th century books that are already considered part of that Western canon. We're going to be talking about individual canons within it, the canon of Renaissance literature, the canon of American literature. There's a number of ways to decide what goes into your canon. This is a speech I, I give my um, writing and literature students at the beginning of the semester. There are six basic types of criticism, which means there's six basic ways to determine whether something is worthy of inclusion into your canon. What makes, what makes a book great? And I'll go through these quickly. The first is aesthetic. This book is beautiful. It's, it's one of the most beautiful books ever written. Thus, we should read it. 
The second is affective or emotional, which means um, people tend to have a strong reaction to this book generally in the positive. It moves you. Thus, it needs to be included. Um, there's the moral canon. These things are these books are the ones that say the right things. They, they uh, and you know, there's all sorts of different moralities you could use to include or exclude something from your canon. Uh, there's what I call the social canon, which means either these books represent a viewpoint that is usually excluded, or these these books change the world. So if you looked at something like Uncle Tom's Cabin, probably not the world's greatest book. However, it affected a great deal of social change. Thus, does it belong in the canon? According to some people, there's uh, the humanistic canon, which th this. Uh, Depending on how you look at it, the humanistic canon either is books that speak the truth about the human condition or books that uh, can save us in some way. that They can offer some sort of secular salvation. And then finally, you have the hermeneutic canon, which is the, these are the books that are open to endless interpretation. So those are my personal six types of criticism, six factors that decide whether something can be part of the canon now. The interesting thing about those six is they don't really talk to each other. Other than a few that <laughs> tend to be combined, the moral and the social are often combined. You mm -hmm. don't really... If somebody wants to include something on aesthetic grounds, nothing you say about hermeneutics is going to change their mind. Mm -hmm. So that's why the making of a canon can be a very tricky thing, because the route you take into understanding what makes what makes books worthy or unworthy is a very personal thing. It's very... You know, it's something that really goes down to the core of your, your being. Now, we're always going to have some sort of canon. And we have to because canons decide largely what gets taught in universities. And likewise, what gets taught in universities largely decides the canon. Mm -hmm. Now, there, so... is an, there is an element of suppression in this. Much of the major Western canon is, is white men. There's no way around that. Almost Fascist. all of it. 80-90% at the, at the very lowest is, is going to be white men. And, and there are reasons for that we're going to get to. Um, but one of, one of the reasons for that is probably that white men largely made the canon. And so there is some especially at the beginning, there is some deliberate exclusion of women and, and ethnic minorities. On the other hand, the canon wars of the 80s and 90s have largely abated, thank God. And I think what we've slid into is a suggestion Paul Lauder made um, when those canon wars were at their height, which is he says we should have multiple canons. There should be a mainstream, but then there should be a bunch of other canons of equal or almost equal importance. And I, I really think that's where we are. So there's a main Western canon that people can feel free to ignore or pay attention to. And then there's also a canon of African-American literature. There's also a canon of feminist literature. There's a canon of Asian literature. There's all sorts of different canons, and that's all okay. And I think that's where we are now. Do you guys disagree? I think that's usually how the, the university practices it, yes. Okay. Well, I'm working with the assumption that, that these limiting choices, um, however ne necessary, or, you know, however well-intentioned based on, you know, whatever, you know, focus is, is uh, serving as the, the building principle of your canon, um, that these will skew our perspective on historical periods or on literary genres or traditionary literary subjects. Um, I mean, can I assume that we agree on this, that any canon is, in, any canon is going to, to skew things somehow? Yeah, yes. I, I, I think that's fair to say, and I would also add to that, David, that the whole idea of teaching a curriculum based on literary historical periods is a relatively recent phenomenon as far as I can tell. I can't 
really find any evidence of a curriculum broken up into classical period, medieval period, Renaissance period, so on and so forth, really before the advent of the German university in the late 18th and 19th centuries. Okay. So so as basically as as literature began to become an adjunct of the, of the historical and antiquarian disciplines. Right, right. And as Hegel mm-hmm. became the figure to, you know, to which you responded or whose work you continued, you know, of course his giant two-volume uh, lectures on aesthetics, uh, as far as I can tell, really does sort of set the stage for the next couple hundred years of periodizing in the literary curriculum. Right. Well, I think one of the things that, that I'm kind of responding to in, in setting up this, uh, this discussion is that, uh, it, it, well, ha- having, having taught a literature survey in the fall, uh, in some senses, it seemed to me that uh, there was there was a desire to anchor the literature in the historical period, but at the same time, there seemed to be a reliance on some choices of canon that that obs- that obscured that other goal. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we get to um, literature, let's talk about the canon, um, which uh, I believe we've spoken before. But I'm not really sure I remember when about canons within canons <laughs> um, developing, especially in our reading of the Bible. Um, so, Nathan, uh, I mean, can, can you cite some examples of this? Well, sure. The phrase canon within a canon, I'm not sure what the origin of it is. Uh, I poked around a little bit, but I couldn't find sources that agreed with it, each other about who invented the phrase. I know that in my own experience in seminary, this was usually a derogatory term. It was almost always applied to those other people. Uh, and for instance, I mean, just to give two ready examples, uh, when evangelicals would write about uh, liberal Protestants, they would say that, you know, the Gospel of Luke and then the Old Testament prophets are sort of a canon within a canon for the Walter Rauschenbusch set uh, to the exclusion of the Pauline letters and especially the pastoral epistles. Uh, and then, you know, on the other side of that, of course, you know, the folks who are more given to, uh, you know, a, a social gospel sort of reading would point to Calvinist camps and say, you know, that the letters of Galatians, Romans, and First Timothy are sort of a canon within a canon for the Calvinists uh, mm-hmm. to the exclusion of the synoptic gospels and so on and so forth. So usually it's an accusation, in my experience anyway, it's usually an accusation pointed at another group indicating that there is an undue emphasis on a few books of the Bible to the exclusion of others, uh, which, you know, if you turn the mirror around, it would probably turn out that those were your own canon within a canon. Now, as far as, you know, books that get left out of almost everybody's canon within a canon, uh, the answer is there aren't any because that's kind of what the whole game is. It's, <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> it's which corner of the Bible you're staking out. So, for instance, you know, whenever I try to, think about, okay, can I, can I think of a book of the Bible that is not in somebody's canon within a canon? I can almost always think of somebody who I think places undue emphasis on any of the 76 books of the Bible because, you know, folks who are very strong, usually converts to Catholicism, uh, tend to go out of their way to quote the wisdom of Ben Sirah and the Maccabean books and so on and so forth. So, uh, you know, this is, as far as, you know, the, the actual practice of the church, 
mm-hmm. think that, you know, even before we had the vocabulary of canon within a canon, the fact that as early as the third century of the Christian era, we have print, not printed, but we have written uh, lectionaries, in other words, lists of texts that preachers were to preach in Sunday gatherings, mm-hmm. uh, indicates that very early on in the life of the church, they discern that having pet books of the Bible was a danger and that preachers should submit to the discipline of preaching texts that they don't choose week to week. Uh, and in fact, when I preach, I mean, I almost always uh, go to the revised common lectionary. There's a very nice web page dedicated to it over at Vanderbilt Divinity School. Uh, and I mean, that is my resource to make sure that I don't preach my pet texts every time I get up in the pulpit. Uh, and, you know, it, it they have you know, that revised common lectionary has pointed me to write some very, very difficult sermons, some which weren't all that successful. But what I can almost always count on after I preach one of these sermons is somebody shaking my hand after service and saying, I've never heard that part of the Bible preached. Right. And so, you know, I think that the lectionary really is an indicator very early on that the church realized the potential for the canon within the canon. Uh, David, is there, is there anything you want me to follow up on with that? Well, I think I think you've tagged all the bases I wanted to get at. Is there anything okay. you wanted to add, Michael? Uh, any any mini canons you want to point to? I'd love to talk about the books that are excluded from the Protestant and Jewish Bibles, but I don't know that. Okay. I mean, I've read them, but I don't know too much about the history. Mm-hmm. Nathan, right. I mean, just to give a real quick historical summary, I mean, uh, it comes down to the publication of Luther's German Bible uh, when he was producing that document. Uh, he actually went to the rabbis there in his region and said, all right, which books make up your Bible? And he said, well, Jesus was a Jew, so we ought to ask the Jews which books are actually in their Bible. So those are the books that ended up being in Martin Luther's Bible. Now, if we go backwards from there, uh, in the early centuries of the Christian era, uh, rabbinic Judaism, as it was taking its shape, looked over to the Christian churches and saw that they were using largely the Greek text of the Septuagint as their... Old Testament or as their scriptures in the first few decades uh, and said, all right, you know, we need to distinguish ourselves from them. And moreover, they saw that a lot of these books that were written in Aramaic and Greek uh, had some ideas that, you know, the Christians were really latching on to. So they said, all right, you know, when we have our scribes copy our Bibles, we're only going to copy the books that are mainly written in Hebrew. Now, there is some Mm -hmm. Aramaic still in the Jewish Bible. Uh, but they are books that are mainly in Hebrew. Uh, so, I mean, that sort of double reverse action, you know, the Jews took some books out because the Christians were using them, and then the Protestants took some books out because the Jews weren't using them. Uh, that's sort of how we get the list of 66 that we Protestants have. That's I mean, and there is, a, there is a big difference. I mean, if you read, you, you mentioned the wisdom of Ben Sarah. That is, that is almost a Greek philosophical text, Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it it has far more in common with not Epicurus because it's responding so blatantly to Epicurus, but it has far more in common with the Greek thinkers than it does with e- even the even um even proverbs. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it's 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 very clearly a a Jewish thinker, but it's it's a Jewish thinker in dialogue with you know the Greek philosophical. Um, 
uh, I, I guess world or however you want to call it. That I mean, that's the kind of conversation that's going on. Right. That's mm-hmm. not what's happening in Proverbs. Worth <laughs> worth reading, by the way, for even the most Protestant of Protestants. I encourage <laughs> everyone to go read those Deut- Deuterocanonical books, even even if you don't consider them scripture, they are valuable. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Which means it, I've you- just set up a second smaller canon. Uh, a deuterocanon it's true it's true (laughs) um now i understand that term yeah well actually real quick i and i just now thought of this because i'm actually in the process of grading my papers for western authors and something i never knew about uh the consolation of philosophy by boethius is that he actually does quote the wisdom of solomon at one point which is interesting because the scholarly commonplace is that that book never quotes scripture, you know, which, you know, if you think about it, okay, you know, there you've got a very Protestant assumption. Mm-hmm. And, you know, had this student not found this, you know, in a, in a scholarly article about Boethius, I never would have known that one of the lines that, you know, uh, Lady Philosophy, I believe, recites is actually from the Bible as they knew it in the 6th century. <laughs> Your student made a huge uh, earth-shattering discovery about Boethius. Is that what you're saying? No, what I'm saying is my student taught me something about Boethius. To shake the earth and to go beyond the limits of my knowledge are not the same thing. Close. (laughs) Close, but not not identical. (sighs) Well, let's shift on to, uh, you know, our, our, well, at least Michael and I's pet territory. Um uh, getting getting into the literature. Um, Are you saying I'm not a literary person? <laughs> no, I'm not saying you're a literary person. I'm saying you, uh, you you've also got the biblical. Studies oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> which you know, I I had Bible classes, but you know, I'm not gonna go out there and start talking about stuff. You know, oh, okay. I, I don't have the cred. Um, <laughs> but I can talk about Shakespeare. So if there's any single author who bestrides the English Renaissance canon like a Colossus, it's Shakespeare. <laughs> so what role does he play in that in the Renaissance canon and in our view of the period? Well, Nathan, first, first of all, I mean, in his day, Shakespeare was one among many very successful and very well-known and very well-respected playwrights. There's not much of a sense in his day uh, that he was the the voice of English letters the way that he has become since the 18th century ballpark. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I mean, we do have the poem, you know, a very flattering poem uh, written by John Milton, published at, you know, the beginning of the folio. We've got a very flattering poem written by Ben Johnson at the beginning of the fo- folio. Uh, but those seem to be, you know, the respectful eulogies of his friends and admirers more than judgments of literary history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, uh, really in the... 18th century, like I said, you know, you start getting people saying that Shakespeare is the most English of authors, things like that. Uh, of course, you know, notably in the American educational tradition, uh, because so much of American public education is influenced by Puritan uh, traditions, uh, you don't get a whole lot of Shakespeare in the 19th century. Uh, And when you do, you get excerpts from plays printed as the poems of Shakespeare rather than the plays. Uh, (laughs) On the other hand, you do get traveling, traveling drama companies going to cowboy towns 
out in Wyoming and Texas and so on and so forth doing scenes from Shakespeare. So, you know, I, I, I learned all this, of course, from uh, Dr. Fran Teague at UGA, who has done extensive research into Shakespeare's reception in America. But to backtrack into, you know, the canon as we're talking about it, uh, one of the realities of literary canon in the college life is that canon largely defines what gets into a four-year bachelor's degree program. And one of the notable things is that at my own college, Emmanuel, the only required class dedicated to a single author in our English major is the Shakespeare class. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Shakespeare, I mean, I, you know, I hope our listeners don't hear me trying to diminish the worth of Shakespeare's plays by any means. You know, anyone who has spent time with Shakespeare knows that his characters really are some of the most wonderful literary creations that you're going to encounter. Uh, but I also would hasten to add that, you know, his position as the Colossus of the canon is a contingent thing. In other words, if the intellectual life of the English speaking world had developed differently, I could imagine a situation where a Middleton or a Beaumont and Fletcher or Marlowe or mm -hmm. Ben Johnson became the central author to which Shakespeare was, you know, a sort of side industry that scholars dealt with, but not a whole lot of other people. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, you know, I, I think that everyone should read Hamlet and Othello and Midsummer Night's Dream and all those wonderful plays. Uh, but I also think that, you know, if you are curious about the folks against whom Shakespeare was competing, uh, you should also read, uh, you know, Bartleby Fair and The Alchemist and Dr. Faustus and, you know, all of these other great plays of the period because they really do have their own particular flavors. Uh, Shakespeare does what he does better than anyone else, but it's also true that Marlowe does what he does better than anyone else. Mm-hmm. So you've I mean, kind of a, in your opinion, what? there's no sense in saying, oh, Middleton is better than Shakespeare. It's just a, a matter of them all doing different things. Uh, you know, someone with more refined sensibilities than I have might be comfortable making those judgments. Honestly, even after having taught them for a number of years and having read them for over a decade, I still don't feel like I am tall enough to hold a measuring stick up to their heads. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, you know, I, I, I don't say that as an utter relativist. I mean, there are certain plays from the period uh, that just really aren't as good. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, when you're looking at the really great ones, the ones that are still appearing in anthologies, and I am thinking of, you know, Beaumont and Fletcher, I'm thinking of Ben Johnson, I'm thinking of Christopher Marlowe. I mean, it really is one of those situations where if you're looking for, you know, a sort of ecumenical, Christianized, morality sort of drama Shakespeare's your dude if you're looking mm -hmm. for a strong and almost post-Calvinist it's so Calvinist morality then you're going to want John Ford or Christopher Marlowe and then you know if it, it, so on and so forth I mean different playwrights are doing very different things to the point where you know I, I to answer your question a little bit more concisely Michael I wouldn't say that you know there is this thing called English drama and some, you know, none of them are doing it better than any of the others. I would say that there's no singular thing called English drama. 
and therefore you ought to take them on their own terms and enjoy what they're doing. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sure I don't have to tell you that there is a small cottage industry of popular Renaissance scholars declaring that Middleton or Beaumont or Fletcher are better than Shakespeare, right? I mean... Well, yeah, and I mean, I you know, I, and, and I, I think of those folks as roughly analogous, um, and I hate even to say this because I'm, I'm probably going to alienate some of the people who I studied with at UGA, but I, I th <laughs> you know, I, I, I think of them as roughly analogous to what Bart Ehrman does in the field of biblical studies. Gotcha. Mm. They're, they're saying controversial things that really don't mean much. And it's it, controversial only to... Uh those who care about those plays well i was going to say to the middle brow yeah yeah it's not it's not controversial to specialists who either already agree with them or don't care <laughs> and it's not it's not controversial to people who watch jersey shore you know well i mean i mean just the question who is better is right. is not a it's not a terribly sophisticated question to ask about literature and i think i think the question yeah. nathan is asking yeah. What what different things are they trying to do is a much more interesting and productive question. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if we ever do a show about the uh, English Renaissance, I would love to hear the answer to that question. <laughs> yeah. Well, I gave I gave you kind of an answer right there, but uh, it's true. Yeah, and you know, and just to reiterate, I mean, there are some plays of the period, some of them Shakespeare's, uh, that are just you know not very good. Uh, <laughs> and you know, I'm I'm not saying that everything written between. 1576 and you know 1640 is all uniformly interesting because it's not uh but i am saying that there are different kinds of interesting things going on right and i i, I had an idea um i was t actually talking to my wife about it last night i wanted to pitch at you nathan okay um the idea of the performative in literature of of talking about uh, poetry or or prose as being performative, uh, it struck me as uh, perhaps an effect of Shakespeare and particularly Shakespeare as dramatist um, overshadowing the way we look at the Renaissance that if we took him away and, and erected someone else instead, like for instance a Philip Sidney, mm -hmm. do you think people might be writing dissertations about the poetic in Marlowe's Faustus? That's yeah. inner. Well, and I mean, since you know, my my own mentor in Milton studies actually did write a book called "The Poetics of Jacobean Drama." Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll say that it's already happening, but uh, you know, I, I I think that I'm inclined. Let me put it this way: I'm inclined to locate the current craze for performativity and performance uh, as categories. I'm inclined to locate that craze more in French and other continental philosophical traditions mm -hmm. that are sort of migrating over from philosophy into the literary criticism arena. Uh, and the only reason I say that is because, like I said, I mean, there are stretches where, uh, especially in the 19th century, people did think of Shakespeare mainly as a poet rather than a playwright. Hmm. Well, cool. So in other words, you know, as you know, as probably all of our listeners who have listened to more than three episodes could predict, I'm inclined to locate it in historical contingency. <laughs> <laughs> as is your want. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, well, I want to shift some things uh, in a, a very completely different direction, actually, now. 
Um, Michael, my impression, you're our Americanist, so you can check my impression because it's built up on woefully little data. But uh, <laughs> my impression of the American literary can canon is that it's a, it's a much more diffuse thing than uh, the English Renaissance. There doesn't seem to be a central Shakespeare figure. And because, you know, I'm patriotic, uh, I tend to get this happy glow because I think that means our canon's more democratic. So uh, what is the shape of the American canon uh, and also the, the America that that canon produces? The shape, if you want to be visual, is a lot shorter and squarer than, <laughs> than, the, than the continental canon, which I tend to think of as long and thin. Um, and, and there are very good reasons for that, the most obvious of which is that America is a whole lot younger than Europe, and it's probably it's probably more diverse historically than most of Europe. I don't mm -hmm. I don't I don't think that's a that's a controversial statement. We don't have a central Shakespeare figure, although if you look, especially at the time when the canons became very important in the 1920s, there were various moves to find a central figure. And the two I I always look at are Benjamin Franklin, who I've often said wrote America's epic poem. In, in, the, in the form of his autobiography. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mark Twain, who, I mean, uh, Hemingway says famously that all of American literature begins with one book by Mark Twain called The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Hmm. Now, it's, it's not true. There, there, are, there are precursors <laughs> to that. There, there's precursors to Twain. There are great writers in American literature before Twain. Uh, he's probably not even the greatest of his, his era. Uh, Huck, Huck Finn is almost certainly not the greatest book of its era, but um, there there have been there have been moves to in kind of crown a Shakespeare of America that have been mostly unsuccessful. Though I think if you if you pushed most people, especially again most middle brow folks, non specialist intellectuals, to the wall and ask, I think most people would probably say Twain is our Shakespeare figure. I think that falls apart if you read more than two books by Twain and realize that he was wildly inconsistent in a way Shakespeare wasn't. Not every one of Shakespeare plays was great, but All most right. of Twain's work is, is pretty bad. Okay, well, fair enough. Most I mean, people haven't read anything more than Huckleberry Finn, though. Yeah, you know? It's true, but, I mean, go read even another good book like Puddinghead Wilson, which is, I, I probably like more than Huck Finn. Puddinghead Wilson is a great book the way Neil Young's On the Beach is a great album, which is, there's there's... There's flashes of really great stuff in there, but it's surrounded by incompleteness, shall we say. It feels it feels undercooked and overcooked at the same time. So, I mean, Puddinghead Wilson is second-tier Twain, and it's even pretty bad. Once you step down, and even Huck Finn, and even Hemingway, who crowns it as the first real work of American literature, says, but it should have ended 70 pages before it did. I mean... <laughs> Virtually nobody likes the ending of Huckleberry Finn, and yet we hold it up as the great American novel. I find that, I find that problematic. I I've never liked Huck Finn, um, and in fact, I never even finished it. I I had four classes where I was supposed to read that book, and I never finished it <laughs> until I read for my comps. I never finished it because the, the once. Once they get once Tom Sawyer enters the scene again at the end of that book, I just want to throw it in the trash. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I will agree with that. So if we're calling that the Hamlet of American literature, I think we've got a real problem. 
<laughs> so I'm, I'm much more comfortable saying we don't have a Shakespeare figure. Um, as I said, there wasn't a real American canon until the 1920s, and, and the reason it, beca- it became important then is because that's when we became very interested in asserting ourselves culturally. Mm-hmm. Right after World War II, we suddenly become a world power where we have to have a we have to have a distinctive American culture, which we did. There is a dis- there, by that time there really is a distinctive American literature, starting perhaps with Franklin, going through Emerson, Hawthorne, Melville, who got rediscovered in that era, uh, through Twain, maybe Stephen Crane. He, he probably would have been a little too recent for them to to really pump up. But so so there was a small American canon in the twenties. Now. The politics of the time quite obviously excluded women and African Americans from from the American canon of the time, mm-hmm. um, and so there's been a really heavy revision of that canon in the past few decades, starting in the '60s and going through to the present day. The most obvious additions to the canon: um, Emily Dickinson, who who I have never mm-hmm. been able to stomach, but who is obviously an important American poet. She got added very early on. Kate Chopin, who wrote uh, a great little novella called uh, called The Awakening, she got added in the '70s with the with the feminist added her. Uh, Frederick Douglass, his his various autobiographies got added. Um, one interesting case: Henry Louis Gates Jr., who <laughs> is now more famous for having broken into his own house and drink drank beer with the president. Uh, <laughs> he. Uh, <laughs> He rediscovered, or I, I shouldn't even say rediscovered, because he discovered the first novel written by an African American, which is a, a novel called *Our Nig* by Harriet Wilson. Hmm. So that that's a a really fa- and that's canonical now. You you don't study American literature in any detail without reading *Our Nig*. So that's a that's a famous famous example of the canon being added to for, for very good reasons, right? And that would be an example mm-hmm. of that social canon. This is an important book more than it's a good one because it's certainly not a good book. Uh, it is. It is an important book. It is not well written. It is. It's a melodrama uh, uh, of the of the time. It's it's a not a romance novel exactly. It's somewhere between romance novel and slave narrative. Um, me, I would rather just read an actual slave narrative. But uh, it it is an important book. Um, the mm. other thing they got added were Indian legends, which if you get any anthology of American literature and open it to the first few pages, you're going to get Native American creation stories. Right. Mm-hmm. Because because it became very important. Rightly so to include them in American literature because they were, of course, the first Americans before it was America. Now, the canon since the 20s, the, 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 the books that have been published since the initial canon have been markedly more diverse. So, you, of course, you get the Harlem Renaissance in the 20s. You get the mm-hmm. Jewish-American lit explosion in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. You get feminist literature, etc. But I think if you look, the canon still has primarily white men um, when you think of American literature, you probably think of Emerson, Twain, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Faulkner, people like that, all white men. You you, you probably think of Dickinson as well. Mm-hmm. You, you you might think of Langston Hughes, but probably you're still thinking of white men. And and I, I do think that's a problem. I, I think especially with stuff written... I, I don't particularly like it when people try to pretend like... Um, Sappho, for example, is as important as Homer because she's not. But when you're talking about the the 1920s, I think it's completely legitimate to put Nella Larson on the same level as uh, Langston Hughes or uh, Zora Neale Hurston on the same level as Langston Hughes. Mm. I I think that's Mm -hmm. a fair comparison to make and something that should be done. But what's interesting is as the American literature canon has been revised, what's happened is people who once seemed 
like they would be there forever are now gone. And the, the most obvious example of this, go to anyone, the generation before me, so people born in the 50s, and ask them about Paul Revere. And what are they going to say? <laughs> the Midnight Ride know. of Paul Revere. They're going to they're going to recite the first yep. eight to ten lines of the Midnight Ride of Paul Revere. Oh, By yeah. Longfellow, right? Yeah, right, Longfellow. Okay, Longfellow, yeah. Longfellow, can you, you guys recite anything other than Listen, My Children, and You Shall Hear the Midnight Ride of Paul Revere? Yeah, yeah no. no. You're older than me. Um, but... <laughs> My point is, I never read Longfellow in school. I never read him in any college class. I never read him in high school, middle school, or elementary school. We watched the Disney film Little Hiawatha, and that was the closest I came to reading Longfellow. I do not think my experience is exceptional. I think very few people read Longfellow anymore in any kind of academic context. And there's a couple of reasons for that. And for this, I'm going to recommend our... our Listeners, go read an article in the most recent American Scholar by the irrepressible Jill Lepore, who I just love. She she wrote an article about Hemingway's fall from grace, and it has a lot to do, interestingly enough, with the fact that he he, he is was loved by popular audiences. So he's white and he's male, which means he's in danger when it comes time to revamp the canon. He's white and he's male and he's loved by popular audiences. So fans of T.S. Eliot aren't going to defend him. So he's an obvious choice to get rid of. But what are we losing when we lose Longfellow? And uh, Lepore goes into that. She goes into how revolutionary a poem Paul Revere's Ride is. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's not at all <laughs> Literally. about... Yeah, well, it's not at all about Paul Revere. That poem is about the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I, I doing. I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Everybody should go read it. But that, um, and I, the other person I think you're seeing that happen to right now is Robert Frost for the same reasons. Mm-hmm. He's loved by popular audiences, so highbrow folks don't particularly want to defend him. Mm-hmm. He's a white man, so he's on the chopping block in a way that Zora Neale Hurston, who's loved by popular audiences, is not on the chopping block. So right. I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if in 50 years. Nobody reads Robert Frost anymore, which is a shame because Robert Frost is far darker and more interesting than the people who quoted him at your graduation think he is. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, is this? I mean, and this was maybe something I was hitting at in uh, the way I phrased it. But I mean, is is this reshaping of the canon? Does it have? I mean, it, is, are we not seeing also an attempt? Uh, an active shaping of what what American means. Oh, of course, yeah, and and, and you're seeing a broadening of what American means, which which mm-hmm. is why it's important that we do get female writers and African American right. writers and Native American writers in there. I agree with that. Um, well, but and is I, it I'm not saying we should. If you're keep... also removing these people, you're removing some white guys and leaving others in. I mean, I I am not particularly against taking Longfellow out. I think it's a shame. I don't know if I would fight for him. Because right. if you fight for him, you're going to have to take somebody else out. And who's it right. going to be? Emerson? You, you know, if you have to if you have to pick one of those two guys, <laughs> I know which one I'm picking. Right. Yeah. And we also should note that we're not necessarily talking about, you know, burning the books like sometimes the Dan Brown School of Canon Studies would have you believe. You know, it's right. not that we're, you know, taking all of the Longfellow books out of the library and, you know, putting them in a warehouse where no one can see them. Uh, it's just that in a 15-week semester, 
when you have to teach all of the literature between you know 1492 and 1865 at crown it's actually all the way the it's uh american lit is one uh, one semester course Oh wow! Okay, so it's it's still two semesters that are manual. So so Long, Longfellow uh, Longfellow's not not in my syllabus for American Lit, and it's not because I hate Longfellow. It's because mm-hmm. you have this many days, you have to cover this many years, and uh, I think that era is adequately covered by Emerson, Thoreau, and Whitman. Mm-hmm. But. I do recommend people go read some Longfellow. He's not the world's greatest poet. He uh. But he, he's far more interesting than you think he is, which tends to be the case mm-hmm. with people who, who are perceived as stodgy and get left out of the canon. Right, well, right. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, is he just getting left out because he's bourgeois and not a neo-environmentalist or a transcendentalist or, well, whatever Walt Whitman is? <laughs> he, partly, because, partly it is political. Partly, he is he is less revolutionary than Walt Whitman. Partly, I, I am comfortable making this statement: Walt Whitman is a better and more original poet than Longfellow. Mm-hmm. Walt, Walt Whitman has things to say that that had not really, or uh, Whitman has things to say that had not really been said before. Longfellow right. kind of does, but I, I I don't know a responsible American literature scholar who would suggest that that Longfellow is better than Whitman or even more important than Whitman except in the the very immediate aftermath of his death. Long, Longfellow right. was the mm. most popular poet in American history. But uh, right. but was was he was he influential on, on that many people? Probably not. Probably not in the long run other than you know everybody knows uh everybody knows those first two lines of Paul Revere's ride and everybody knows uh by the sh- by the shores of well, see, I don't even know me by the shining big sea water or something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, that <laughs> poem is really great for one book, but once you read all 11 books or however many, you just want them to shut up. <laughs> you get that rhythm stuck in your head. You know that rhythm is dun 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 dun, dun like the stereotypical Indian stuff. By the I, I, I shores the, of Gitte. Yeah. yeah. When I when I when I read when I read the song of Hiawatha, I get I get locked into that rhythm in my head. Anyway, you start you start talking in it. Yeah. Right. So, but, so it sounds like is, Walt. Okay. The point is, thanks feel for free. downloading the podcast. Oh, wait. <laughs> Point is, feel free to read Longfellow. Read him, love him. If you can find a reason to teach him, teach him. But as mm-hmm. things stand, if you got to leave somebody out, he's the one to leave out. And and you know, recognize that you are leaving somebody out, and you're leaving lots of people out. But he's one mm-hmm. who used to be there. He's not anymore. Yeah. Well, it's it. It sounds to me like you're saying he's occupied. He occupies the same kind of position in American poetics that well, I think Tennyson seems to occupy now. And, yeah. lit, and exactly. George MacDonald in the Victorian novel, frankly. Um, I, I read George MacDonald in my Victorian class, the only one I've ever taken, but it was a Christian school. Right. Well, it's, and that's that, that probably has something to do with it. Yeah. But, I mean, he was hugely popular early in his day, but you you practically have to go to a life way in order to find him in print now. Victorian <laughs> literature is one of the few areas in which contemporary popularity doesn't exclude someone from the canon. Mm-hmm. Right. Nobody looks suspiciously at Conan Doyle, mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. though I mean those stories were hugely. Po- Nobody's going to suggest that the canon of Victorian literature shouldn't shouldn't include Sherlock Holmes, right? Oh no. So Victoria, <laughs> Victorian, the Victorian era is an odd, an odd time for canon studies. Yeah. 
Well, if I may change uh, change streams a little bit and divert to the Middle Ages for a second, just because I have to, um, <laughs> I'd like to take a few moments and uh, put Beowulf and Chaucer in their place. First, I think we need to hear your fanfare, David. Okay, sure. And now, David Grubbs talks Beowulf. So, um, Beowulf. I love Beowulf. I'm writing my dissertation about Beowulf. Okay, this is this is not out of out of a dislike for it, but uh, there are a few things about Beowulf. <laughs> and David and I qualify our statements. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. There are a few things about Beowulf though that need to be made clear. It occupies a vast position in not only um, you know the Anglo-Saxon literature as it's taught, medieval literature as it's taught. But even in popular conceptions of what that period of Anglo-Saxon England was like. Um, but I think, first of all, if you just read the poem, you realize that the poet is not talking about Anglo-Saxon England or his own culture as it was actually carrying on in the time that he wrote. Um, it, Beowulf is is self-consciously uh, – Historical. He's 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 imagining what things would have been like long, long ago in the days of the ancestors. So you know, don't imagine Anglo-Saxon England looks like the Danes and the Geats of Beowulf. Um, another issue is we only have one copy of it. There's not um, a bazillion D copies of Beowulf lying around there. It wasn't you know on the New York Times bestsellers list. <laughs> you know, in AD eight fifty. Wouldn't it just be the York Times? Yeah, well, uh, the old York Times, yes, probably. Well, it wouldn't be even be old yet because there wouldn't be a new one. So yeah, just the York Times. Um, so so far as we know, um, we don't. We not only do we not have multiple copies of Beowulf, we don't have anyone else telling his story or mentioning his name. Even um, there are no allusions to it. So. Uh, I think it's an important poem. I think it's beautiful on its own merits. I think it has a lot of great things to say. But in terms of giving us um, giving us a sense of what was going on in Anglo-Saxon England, the action in the story doesn't reflect it, uh, nor does it seem to have been – nor can we really argue that it was a poem that reflected the interests of Anglo-Saxons in general. Um, cause again, we've only got the one copy and even though there's not a whole lot of stuff that, that, and I am talking, you know, I am speaking out of a dearth of manuscript evidence, um, from mm-hmm. Anglo-Saxon England there, there's just not a whole lot out there. Grubbs, but what I would do you con- recommend replacing or supplementing Beowulf with? Well, I, I, I would point to another heroic figure of Anglo-Saxon England, a, a hero, a hero saint named Guthlock. Uh, who is as best known for moving out into the middle of a swamp in a hermitage and fighting demons St. Anthony style. Uh, he was one of those uh, eremitical saints of, of Anglo-Saxon England. Now, for one thing, he's, he's a Christian saint, 
and hagiography was hugely popular in Anglo-Saxon England. So it's it's written in a genre that we see widely reflected. It reflects the faith of the, of its own time. Second, we have a Latin life, multiple copies. We have two different Old English prose versions of his life and two different Old English poetic versions of episodes from his life. Um, so from that, he's he's a more popular character who's also representing something closer to what the culture at that time would have viewed as heroic. And the, and possibly, you know, if you wandered out in a swamp in Anglo-Saxon England, you might actually meet Guthlock wannabes. Um, so, you know, it, it, Be- Beowulf is wonderful, but, you know, as, as an Anglo-Saxonist, I have to step back from it and say, um, you know, if we focus on Beowulf exclusively as our window into Anglo- Anglo-Saxon England, our view of it is going to be extraordinarily skewed. Grubbs, I wish you had been at the, uh, conference for Christianity and literature I went to a couple weeks ago, because... There was a uh, a woman, Sarah Adams from Azusa Pacific, who gave a lecture about about how Beowulf is woefully inadequate to teach the Anglo-Saxon period, and she yeah. recommended having students read that poem because there's a lot of stuff in that poem that echoes, like symbolism and things like that, that echo mm-hmm. with with other Anglo-Saxon texts. But she recommended uh, adding to it the Dream of the Rood and uh, Cadman's Hymn. Both of which yeah. are very short and can be read quickly. Right, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. But if I have, if I'm having to set up another, a hero story in that way, um, well, Dream of the Rude does that because it's a heroic rendering of crucifixion story. Right. But um, I, I think Guthlock would be a good if 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 we're trying to figure out um, what kind of awesome hero character was on the front of Anglo-Saxon children's cereal boxes. You know, who did they play it being? <laughs> it might more likely be Guthlock wrestling devils than Beowulf wrestling Grendel. Would you recommend not teaching Beowulf in a uh, 200 level class? Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> God forbid. Is Guthlock, um, is Guthlock in the uh, Norton anthology? I don't even think it is. See that, uh, that that that's one, you you know we're we're talking in very uh, idealistic ways about what what to teach in the classroom, but true. what's in the anthologies makes a big difference, and, and to some degree we don't really get to control what the canon is. We uh, mm-hmm. we we have to go by what the Norton gives us. Although I tend to assign trade paperbacks, so yeah, <laughs> but well, I'm I'm yeah. incor- I'm incorrigible that way. There's a uh, a large ah, I can't remember if it's Penguin or Everyman. It's one of those other kind of inexpensive uh, literary works paperbacks series. Anyway, they have one. Uh, I believe it's just called Anglo-Saxon Poetry, yeah. and it's that's the Everyman volume. That's the one you recommend, uh, Everyman, David. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's the <laughs> biggest. Um, all the Anglo-Saxon poetry you can cram between two paper covers that that I've ever seen. Um, if you read all the way through that, you've read almost every bit of Anglo-Saxon poetry there is. Mm-hmm. For the record, um, and Guthlock not, is... And it's not that expensive. For the Do record, I, Guthlock is not in the Norton, I just checked. Okay, yeah. Not in the copy of the Norton I have, which is several years old. Yeah. 
Well, Chaucer isn't exactly the same kind of thing. Chaucer was popular in his own day. I mean, he was he was connected at court. Um, you know, he I mean, he wrote poetry for Gaunt of John uh, or John of Gaunt for goodness sake. I mean, uh, you know, he he was connected to power players. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was popular and we know this by manuscript evidence. There was a lot of them. But I mean, he's kind of like Shakespeare in the British Renaissance. There were a lot of other really talented guys. Uh, who were writing around the same time. Um, a couple I'd like to point out. Uh, John Gower, who wrote, uh, among other things, many, many other things, uh, Confessio Amantis, um, which is this long allegorical poem about falling in love. Um, in a lot of ways, Gower's, um, Gower's sensibilities and his topics were much more a lot were much more aligned with the popular taste of the reading audience than were Chaucer's. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Confessio Amantis was what the people wanted. Uh, ditto John Lydgate and his Troy book, um, which is this big, long uh, Middle English poem that is working not only with, um, you know, the the familiar Trojan War story that we would get from Homer, even though he didn't have Homer, he had it through, you know, like second and third hand Latin versions, but also this all this other accretion of Trojan Wars uh, sequels and prequels and all this kind of crazy stuff that built up around the Trojan War. And he's rendering all of this into one ginormous, almost like a chivalric romance. It's it's like King Arthur, except it's, you know, Troy. It's the matter of Troy. And it's big. It's long. It's really really interesting stuff but it was also thing it was also something that people were really interested in um so if we want to reflect you know what 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 kinds of books were people reading at the time well troy books probably a bit more aligned is going to reflect more the sensibilities of the era than even would uh the canterbury tales mm-hmm. um and not to downgrade taking a social view of the canon that yes that what's important is is what gives us a historical view of the uh of the period which is which is i mean david i'm not an anglo-saxonist so mm. we're no well what i'm doing in that is simply reflecting um the uses to which beowulf and chaucer have been put i mean historically one of the reasons why beowulf rose to prominence is because it was treated as a view to the anglo-saxon past gotcha Right, One of the right. reasons why Chaucer has risen to prominence is because he's the voice of the everyman showing us everyday life, right? Interesting. Um, you know, through his his parade of fairly realistic pilgrim characters. And, and that may be true. He may be showing us these fairly realistic characters, but he isn't showing but, – but in reading that book, he isn't showing us what those characters what, – what people like those characters would actually have been interested in reading. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Um, you know, and, and, you know, we could go on and, you know, poke holes in, in other things like Gawain and the Green Knight, of which there is only one copy. And even though it's the only chivalric romance that most people read in a, a sophomore level survey, it's completely, it's almost completely unlike almost every other chivalric romance in Middle English or any other language. Um, but that's the only example people look at, uh, you know, and uh, that, that seems to be very often at least to me, the way the Middle English the, – the Middle English lit that, that people end up getting familiar with, to me anyway, always ends up being the stuff that's amusingly atypical. 
I, I don't think that's just Middle English. If you think about the essay most people have to read when they read Emerson, for example, they, they read they read self-reliance, which is mm. not exactly atypical, but is one fragment of a very large, very confusing philosophical system. And then they think they understand Emerson. Follow your bliss, dude. Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> but he's got so much more to say than that. Well, I mean, and also you got to think about just how much of what we think of as canonical literature is written from exile, right? So, I mean, mm-hmm. in their day, by definition, these folks would have been on the outside looking in. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I and this is just one of my favorite architectural foibles of the University of Georgia, but, you know, around the pediment of the administration building, the physical location of the man on UGA's <laughs> campus, you have mm-hmm. the names of folks like... Dante, Goethe, Milton, you know, all these people who are <laughs> exiled by authority and are writing from exile. And I, I, I always chuckle when I walk by that building because, you know, uh, whatever the architect was thinking, I, I like to imagine the architect as playing a nasty little joke on whoever the president of the University of Georgia was at the time. Yeah, because are, those are going to be the last authors to be authorizing authority. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, well, I, th- I think we need to wind down cause we're, we're running long already. Um, you did, <laughs> well, you get us talking one... about literature. We can always talk for like three hours. Well, oh, that's sure. true. That's true. And maybe we've got an audience that wants that, but you know, there are other days and other hours. Um, you, you mentioned this, uh, in, in conversation before the show, Nathan, um, talking about the way studies, the studies approach to English literature, other kinds of emerging disciplines, um, are kind of reshaping, uh, the way we think about canon. Uh, maybe this plays into, uh, what Michael was talking earlier about specialty canons. Mm-hmm. Did you want to talk about that just a little bit? Yeah, I, I wanted to bring it up because often it is the folks who are proponents of African-American studies, women's studies, gay studies, uh, post-colonial studies who are the most vocal and strident opponents of what they regard as the Western canon or the dead white dudes, as they often call them. Uh, and, you know, a, a couple things. I mean, I realize we're running long on time, so I'll, I'll keep it relatively brief. But first of all, I think that those things are valuable in their own rights as specialized areas of study, just like I think that someone could reasonably write a dissertation on Longfellow and it would be useful as a piece of scholarship. I do wonder, and I mean, I I realize I'm going straight for the editorial without doing a lot of analysis. I do wonder whether that is the stuff of core education, the way it's becoming that. Uh, And, you know, the reason that I bring this up, I'm reminded of a line from a a talk by, oh, which one? It was Jürgen Moltmann. Uh, that was actually recorded by Emergent Village, of all people. Uh, <laughs> but when he was asked about you know, the post, post-colonial movement, uh, he says uh, he was present for a very amusing, although no one there got the joke, exchange in which someone was lecturing to a group of students and said, uh, the power of the white male Protestant uh, continental European uh, should not determine the imaginative experience of the Latin American citizen because it is as Karl Marx said (laughs) (laughs) 
And, you know, he said that, uh, you know, apparently nobody in that room got the joke except for him. Uh, but, Karl you know, Marx wasn't of, Protestant, at least. What now? Karl Marx wasn't Protestant. I think he was officially registered as one, wasn't he? I, I realized he was his Jewish. Fam- his family was, but in order to actually have some standing in society, I think his family nominally became Lutheran. Oh, I see. I, listeners, if I've got that wrong, write in and tell us. Uh, but the point that I'm trying to make with that little story is that, you know, those studies approaches very often gain their intellectual tools. They put tools in their toolbox that are derived from the long tradition of what we call the Western canon. And I don't think that's a bad thing because, first of all, there is no place called West you know, except on a compass rose, you know, I mean, when we're talking about the Western tradition, what we're talking about is this constellation of African, European, and Asian writers, and American eventually, uh, you know, from all over, really, uh, they might have been lighter skinned than other people living at their time, but they were also not, they didn't look like Nate Gilmore, (laughs) all right, Uh, or at least a lot of them didn't, all right, Uh, so I mean, I think that one of the things that good historical analysis, in the vein of Marxian analysis, by the way, if you look at Marx, he's always very ready to point out that, you know, the revolution happens because of the energy provided by the oppressing class. Uh, you know, I, I think that some historical awareness would be handy there. Um, now, let me say something good about studies here, although I sort of opened with it. I'll sandwich it with one more good thing and then I'll pass it off so that we can be mindful of time. Uh, I do think that the various insights of these studies approaches really do some nice things to shed light on just how odd and just how alien a lot of the conventional dead white guys are. Uh, And in fact, I mean, I almost always use the tools of post-colonial analysis to take a look at how the people of Athens treat Socrates. And in fact, I, you know, I didn't make up that move. Jacques Derrida, of all people, uh, on one of his essays on hospitality, uses the apology of Socrates as his source text to talk about the experience of the foreigner. Mm. So, I mean, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, if you are too, and I hate to use this word, but it's the only one I've got in my toolbox. If you're too simple minded, to see that all language is multicultural or all literature is multicultural literature, you're going to miss out on a whole lot of interesting things because you're so eager to exclude what has tra- traditionally been included. And thus ends my editorial. What do you guys have to say? Um, here, here. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm doing a dissertation that's that's doing Beowulf uh, in in a, a court in. Uh, through uh, some ethnicity studies stuff, um, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it's not as if uh, the Anglo-Saxons, um, who you know, they're the A and the S in the middle of the wasp, uh, were some <laughs> kind of uh, I don't know cultural cipher, sort of the vanilla flavor to which all the other colors could be added as, as interesting, um, you know, variants. Uh, they had ideas about themselves as 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 an ethnicity. Or as ethnicities, actually. Right. Um, and, and, re- I, I, and remember that even Homer, the oldest, deadest, and whitest of them all, was writing about an intercontinental international war. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> well, anything to add to that, Michael? Uh, just to people should be, be 
careful they don't let their uh, politics completely control the way they think about literature or everything well, else. Well, I, I think that's just a... Uh, uh, those are words to live by. So. I also <laughs> would like to point out that I am married to a person with a blank studies degree, so... Mm. You know. Oh sure, oh sure, and I, you it's, know, it's one of the things we fight about, but uh, I, I have respect <laughs> for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I guess we should wrap it up. I'd like to make it practical for a second because we're, you know, we we're not just scholars, but we also, uh, you know, are 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 teachers. That's you know, that's at least. I th I think what motivates uh, what motivates us is that we want to not just have ideas, but also share them and you know encourage other people to think th to think as well um what advice would you guys give to a teacher who's trying to build a course in which they have to cram the world into a semester's worth of 50 minute segments um you know th there is a real a real practical uh side to why canons get chosen i mean do, do you think there might be a better way to teach a literature survey to offset the things that we've talked about today Michael? Realize that you cannot possibly cover everything even in the canon. So if you use the Norton Anthology, there's going to be 80 people you never talk about. And that's okay. <laughs> realize yeah. that even if you're the only literature class these people are ever going to take, and you will be for a lot of people, <laughs> I mean, th those, those are the facts, your job is not so much to teach them every in and out of American literature or Renaissance literature, or world literature, or whatever else. Your job is to get them interested enough so that they'll do the rest of the work on their own. Mm. So, pick some people from the canon. Maybe try to add a few people to the canon because you know those people have interesting things to say and that the students are going to respond to them. The important thing is to get it all underneath the student's skin and uh, let them do the rest of the work on their own. That's good. What about you, Nathan? Well, I'm going to quote Derrida again, and I'll, I'll just go ahead and point out uh, what what should be obvious is that I like Derrida more than my two co-hosts do, and that's all right. Um, <laughs> Actually, your liking him makes me like him more. Well, I'm glad to hear that, Michael. That means that I'm doing my job as a teacher. Sure. <laughs> it's underneath my skin. I'll do the rest of the work on my own. There you Frick. go. <laughs> uh, but in an address uh, to the philosophy department at Villanova University, which eventually became the brief book deconstruction in a nutshell which i would recommend to anyone as a very accessible introduction to derrida uh he says that the reading of plato is always before me and i think that this brief statement sort of encapsulates my approach to core curriculum teaching uh i am always willing to mention i'm always willing to entertain in independent student projects various people who are reacting to this sort of core of the Western tradition as we know it. But my sense of the history is that most of the folks that we think of as uh, being suppressed by these people are often in conversation with them in interesting ways. In other words, mm. uh, they didn't simply become intellectual giants ex post facto. Their status more often than not grows out of their actual influence on the mental life of educated culture. Right. Uh, so, I mean, I... First of all, I, you know, I'm discovering more and more in my interactions with my fellow seminarians from the late 90s and the early 2000s that I have, be, I, I have taken a conservative turn over the last decade, which troubles me a bit. Uh, <laughs> but 
I will say that I've become less and less apologetic about teaching Plato, Boethius, Chaucer, Shakespeare, Milton, uh, Dante, you know, these folks who are often derided as the hegemony of a certain political outlook, simply because if you want to get at those other people, the best way to understand them, as far as I'm concerned, is to understand how they're in conversation with the influential ones. So my advice is be historical, realize that no literature happens in a vacuum, and teach it as a conversation. If you want to get to the stuff that's reacting against Plato, go through Plato to get there. Mm. Makes sense. Um, what advice, uh, because I know not everyone who listens to this show is actually teaching courses on literature. In fact, most of them probably aren't. Um, what advice can we give to ordinary readers who are just interested in a more rounded knowledge of, of literature? There is a list online, I believe, compiled from one of Harold Bloom's books of the Western canon. It is enormous. <laughs> it is, yeah. uh, it, it, you will not possibly be able to read all of it, even if you devote your life to it. But go through, go through each era they, they list, pick 20, 30 books, maybe even at random, and, uh, and read them. And don't worry about not knowing the background. Teach yourself. Take your time. And, uh, yeah, enjoy. I'm going to alienate a lot of my older colleagues at Emmanuel College uh, and say, use Wikipedia as your friend. Yes. And by that I mean, uh, if you encounter a reference to a name that someone you find interesting uses, fire that person's name into a Wikipedia search, find out who they are, find out what books they read, what books they wrote, pardon me, and what books they read, if you can. Uh, and if they strike you as interesting, go read them. Mm. Uh, in other words, you know, I think that in the church, the canon serves a very strong practical purpose in that it puts bounds on what gets read out loud in the context of the church service. The literary canon, though, I'll, I'll just go ahead and admit, I see as a function of the 15-week semester it really shouldn't be much of a concern other than to people who teach 15-week semesters. Probably uh, true. So I, so I would say, what now? I said that's probably true. All right. So, I mean, I would say that, you know, because of that, for most folks, I would say go read what you find interesting. I'll echo uh, C.S. Lewis's prologue to the Trinitarian Discourse by Athanasius where he said, uh, if you have a choice between an old book and a new book, read the old book. It'll probably be more interesting. I should say that the list I'm talking about, Bloom's list, is like every book that could possibly be considered part of the canon. Oh, so, okay. I, 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 it's not a 15-week semester bo- uh, list. It is it is every book anybody would possibly ever want to teach you. I gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm talking about a very expanded canon. Yeah. You could also look at the bibliography section of our show notes each week. I think we give people nice plenty of plug. books to read. Yeah, I gotta set it up so you we can make money from people buying those books off Amazon. <laughs> that's that's uh, what venial is that the word? I don't, um, I, I always get venal and venial confused. I always yeah, have to look them up. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a whole nother thing. Um, I want I want to I want to kind of t- tag along with with both of you guys. Um, but uh. 
sort of tagging along with with Nathan, that kind of uh, what makes it into a 15 week semester canon. Um, don't you know recognize that that you know this is not a list of all the good books and feel bad because you haven't read them all, nor read them all and at the end of it feel like you're done. Um, because you 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 won't you won't ever be. Um, uh, also, don't feel guilty because what you're reading is uh, not on the list or not, you know, maybe maybe it's it feels more popular, you know, and so forth. Um, go back and look at the canon and and recognize how many things that are on the canon were popular in their own time were represented are are you know texts of what people um you know if i don't know if some some middle english guy could go to the beach uh he might take take along with him the alliterative mort arthur or gawain in the green knight or <laughs> or whatever you know if you know and so a lot a lot of times over the over the course of of centuries these things build up a mystique that uh well, is is that? It's the result of centuries. So, you know, don't don't feel don't feel bad about the popular. It's more um, about the way you're going to read it. Yes. Yeah. Read read it in conversation with it, and read it in conversation with the other great books you've read, uh, as as Nathan suggested. Although anyway. let's let's not pretend there's not such a thing as bad books. Oh, there are. But that's a topic for another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you and there are still things to be done with bad books. Like burning them, or using them oh. as toilet paper. <laughs> well, I wasn't going to go there, but I mean, or or, or reading them carefully enough that you can actually say intelligently what makes them bad. Yes. Then you can use them as toilet paper. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess we got to wrap this up. Um, well, what have we got going on next week? Well, one, are we recording next week, or is this it for the semester? No, I think well, we're going to go all the way to 50. Okay, sweet yeah, deal. I, th I thought we were going to 52, so I, I've actually got some show notes going for the long-ago-promised George Herbert episode. Herbert is one of my favorite 17th century poets. Oh, yay! Uh, one who often gets maybe half of a day in a 15-week semester of English literature before 1700, so... And we're then going people laugh at him because he, he does those shape poems. But we're not going to do that. We're going to read some Herbert out loud. We're going to talk about some Herbert. We're going to enjoy some Herbert. And we're going to recommend him to our listeners. Or at least I am. No, I love Herbert. <laughs> well, that's it, uh, audience. Uh, next week will be George Herbert. Um, and if you have the choice between listening to this podcast and listening to next week's, absolutely listen to next week's because it's about George Herbert. But wait, you already finished this one, so never mind. Um, you just blew my mind, Groves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wide was, open. That was meta. Some Something swanky and postmodern. Anyway, um, in the meanwhile, if you have any feedback, uh, any questions for us, any uh, if, if you want to castigate me for denigrating Beowulf or something, which would be really odd for me. Um, or something like that. You can uh, post comments on our blog, uh, christianhumanist.org slash chb when the show notes post, right. or you can email us. Or you us. can just go straight to christianhumanist.org now. Thank you very much, Anthony Martinez, Emmanuel College's webmaster. 
Oh, yeah. I just gotten used to giving the other name over. <laughs> very, very, very cool. I, I just wanted to give props to Anthony because I love me some Anthony. <laughs> nice. Or you can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Um, but in the meanwhile, uh, I, I wish you all uh, a grand rest of your week. And uh, I leave you with the words of Luther to uh, let your sin be strong, but let your faith be stronger. Stuck in the old top pits. Get the dinosaurs out of the old top pits. They were kings like Elvis. They got swiveling hips. We will buy them some guitars and some guitar picks. Mad men sleeping by the river sticks. Wild men peeing in the river sticks. They trust their suits as far as they can spit. Who will book them a room at the Motel 6? Skeletons, fingers out. Run aground down on the sunset strip. He's got a boatload of songs, but never a hit. The sun's going down, and so is the ship. Someone drumming in the mummy's crypt. Someone's drumming in the mummy's crypt. He won't get his act together till he's really quit. Cause it's hard to play solo when you got one stick. Jam.